Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. The killer's eyes track the movements of his soon-to-be victim, an obese figure alone in his private bathroom. The assailant, obscured by a slatted closet door, moves closer, his victim unaware of his imminent doom. Just before he reveals himself, his left hand reaches beneath his cloak, unstrapping a custom double-edged blade. With his weapon ready but concealed, he steps into the light. With a wave of the room's wretched odor burning in his nostrils, the killer advances. The victim looks up from his throne, shocked by the intrusion, the folds of his gluttonous mass nearly hanging to the floor, quivering like jello. Calmly, the killer approaches his victim, whispering something that surprisingly calms his prey. Then, without warning, the killer strikes, plunging the dagger so far into the man's belly that the handle goes in after the blade. In the same breath, the killer disappears, unscathed. Unaware of the horror that awaits them, the attendants loiter patiently just outside the chamber. But as minutes pass, their patience turns to panic. As they enter the private quarters, they find their leader disemboweled, lying in a pool of his own filth and blood. Little do they know that soon they too will all be dead, hacked to pieces when the killer returns with his savage horde. This podcast isn't exclusively about toilet murders, although, admittedly, that would be a pretty sweet podcast, especially when you realize this story is from the Bible. But no, this is a podcast about horror. All kinds of horror. What have you done to him, you maniac? I'm one man. Don't fall asleep. Oh, said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I have such sights to show you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. It's an exploration of fear, faith, and stories that scare the hell out of us. I'm your host, Cutter Calloway. Be afraid. I know what you're probably thinking. Whether a story like this is in the Bible or not, what good could come from talking about it? In a world filled with all kinds of horror, both real and imagined, wouldn't it be best to focus our time and energy on things that are good and pure and acceptable? That's a fair question, and we'll get to it in a minute. But first, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Cutter Calloway. My students at Fuller Seminary call me Professor or Dr. Calloway. And over the past decade or so, my teaching, research, and writing have explored the spiritual and psychological aspects of contemporary culture. Because I live in L.A., I focused my writing and lectures primarily on film, television, and digital media. As a theologian, though, 
My main concerns aren't who got snubbed for the Oscars or how big is the production budget for the next Marvel movie, even though I find both pretty interesting. Rather, I'm constantly asking questions like this. What do the things we watch reveal about who we are? What do these choices say about our hopes and dreams and fears? And how might God work through these experiences to get at the deeper expressions of how we understand our hopes, explore our dreams, and wrestle with our fears? I'm fascinated with how some people avoid horror films and others can't seem to get enough of them. And in case you hadn't noticed, horror movies are experiencing a season of unprecedented popularity. Post-apocalyptic survival stories, zombie invasions, supernatural thrillers, slasher films, you name it, people are watching horror of one kind or another now more than ever. And the numbers don't lie. Horror genre rakes in millions at the and box office. success for the movie hit the clown horror film breaking box office record. Like it, Smile, it. that only cost $17 million to produce. It debuted to $22 million. Is the murderous doll making an unexpected killing at the box office? Anytime a year, these films seem to do well. After the global pandemic shut down theaters, Production studios like Blumhouse and A24 provided a shot in the arm to box offices around the world with the success of horror films like The Black Phone, Smile, and Halloween Ends. If you add up the production budgets for all three of these films, the total is no more than $37 million. Together, though, they collectively made $420 million in global box office receipts. But these aren't exceptions or isolated incidents. If anything, the demand for horror stories is only increasing. In fact, the market share for horror films relative to all other movies has doubled since the beginning of the pandemic. But it's a boom that started even before COVID. Some refer to the recent enthusiasm in horror as the Jordan Peele effect. Peele's 2017 film, Get Out, won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and for good reason. It wasn't just an entertaining movie. It also explored real-world issues like racism, privilege, and economic inequalities. No sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Still, the increasing interest in horror is not just about films like Get Out or movies released in the theaters. Multiple streaming services have debuted critically acclaimed horror series like The Last of Us, and others have announced additional seasons to already successful shows like Yellow Jackets. Entire streaming platforms like Shudder and IFC Midnight now exist to bring viewers content that is exclusively dedicated to horror, thrillers, and suspense. Some consider all this interest in horror films to be a reflection of society's deep-seated fears and anxieties. Others take a slightly more critical approach, suggesting that our obsession with horror is eroding contemporary society from within. But whether the genre is functioning as a mirror, a model, or a bit of both, one thing is for sure. Horror is having a moment. And we are too. Here's what I mean. Regardless of where you live, what your politics are, how much money you have, or whether or not you have any kind of religious faith, the last few years have been, to quote the Apostle Paul, a complete shit show. Tonight, three people shot in three different states, all for apparently making simple mistakes. There's still hundreds of people every single day dying from COVID in the United States. At least eight people are dead, including children, after a gunman opened fire at a suburban outlet mall. An estimated 12% of all public school students experience sexual misconduct 
by the time they graduate high school. Ukraine is now a nation at war. The number of weather-related disasters has increased Detailed financial crimes in allegedly years. committed by Hillsong. In Singapore, researchers are developing AI on a whole new level. It can actually read minds. Good day. We are coming on the air with breaking news about a deadly shooting. The flash flood threat across the Gulf Coast tonight. After days of record rain, still more is on the way. No matter how you slice it, each and every one of us has been forced to navigate a never-ending series of disruptions over the past few years. Big T and little t traumas that have generated real-world horrors of all kinds. One of the more unsettling pieces of data is the number of children that have been orphaned worldwide. Estimates vary, but some suggest that as many as 10.5 million children are now orphans because of the loss of parents and caregivers to COVID. It's disturbingly similar to the found footage horror movie, Skinamarink, a story about two children who wake up to find all the windows and doors in their home have disappeared, and so have their mom and dad. It's a terrifying movie made all the more disturbing by the actual horror of young children suddenly losing their parents. Could it be that the current revival in horror films is in some way connected to the horrors we're facing in the real world? Can we really say that the surge of interest in horror is because of all that's happened and is happening in the world right now? And even if we could say this, should we? That's the question I posed to Dr. Pam King, a developmental psychologist who's also a professor of applied developmental science. I wanted to know whether all this horrific media might actually be making things worse, making us more violent and more fearful and quite literally driving us to the brink of madness. So, you know, as humans, fear is really important to us from an evolutionary perspective. It, it tells us like, yo, something is threatening your physical or mental well-being. And so we don't ever want to become desensitized to that. We want to be alert to what is wrong and what is right and what will hurt others. So we don't want to lose that sensitivity. Okay, just so I'm tracking with you, um, our fear response helps us identify potential threats both to ourselves and others but it can become dulled when we're overexposed. So when it comes to our fear response being dulled, what kinds of content concern you the most? There's a lot of objectification of women, over-sexualizing women, a lot of questions about how black bodies are treated in horror. And so I think when we take uh, a genre that does uh, obliterate, hurt, harm, you know, persons in it, even if it's fantasy and to work out, you know, your Thanatos or whatever <laughs> um, psychodynamic thing you might want to, your id approach to, we really want to be careful about who we're representing that is hurt um, and is who's doing the harming. So I think that's something that's really important to pay attention to. So would you say that this is one of the issues that parents in particular need to be aware of? Um, I think it would be worth considering age of exposure of what feels like normative activities for a young person and and perhaps limit viewing of horror. Because if you do watch a lot of horror, you might, you know, it becomes less effective, less arousing for those like crazy, scary emotions because it's it's just not so unusual anymore. Thanks for listening to Be Afraid. This kind of thought-provoking content is made possible by CT's growing community of members around the world. If you want to be part of this movement, fostering truthful reporting, self-reflection, and church unity, join CT today. Your membership will help fuel future projects just like this, and there are more exciting things in the works. 
As a subscriber, you'll also get exclusive perks, including special issues and early access to all of CT Magazine's content. Enjoy your first month free at orderct.com slash be afraid. I believe Dr. King is downloading a lot of important information here. The objectification of women's bodies, the treatment of black bodies, and more generally, the various ways in which harm toward humans is depicted in horror films. Each of these concerns is not only psychologically valid, but even for the most die-hard horror fan, it might cause them to pause for a moment and acknowledge the legitimate questions that some people have about the genre. We'll return to each of Dr. King's concerns in future episodes, but I want to pause for a moment and address her comment about early exposure to horror. Throughout the interviews I've conducted for this podcast, one of the recurring stories is the experience of being exposed to a horror film at an inappropriately early age. For some reason or another, these stories usually involve older cousins playing a movie like The Exorcist for a group of younger kids huddled in the basement while their parents are at a neighbor's having a martini. What I found so fascinating is not just how common these stories are, but also that they're far more than just childhood memories. They're more like origin stories, narratives about when and where fear first entered our lives. My personal story has to do with older cousins abandoning me at the midpoint of a Planet of the Apes marathon viewing. Talk about some damn dirty apes. I bring this up not only to acknowledge how profound the impact can be of watching certain kinds of content too early, I also want you to understand that this podcast is for those mature enough to have an adult conversation about fear. So viewer listener discretion is strongly advised. If it were a film or a TV show, it would be rated R or TVMA. It is not suitable for young children. It may, however, be perfectly suitable for you. In fact, if Master of Horror Wes Craven is right, even if you're not a fan of horror, this podcast might actually be good for you. Here's an interview we did with Craven just after 9-11. One of the most telling things that I've noticed as a filmmaker over a span of 30-some years of making these films is sitting in the back of audience, not necessarily this kind of audience, but the audience that you know, willingly goes into a theater and pays money to see it, is that the kids come out with their faces flushed and they're laughing. And I mean, it seems so clear to me that something has been released, something has been exercised in a way. And they'll come up and they'll pump your hand and say, thank you so much, I was so scared, it was great. And they'll go running out. So it's like, I don't see damaged people. You know, this is one of the most consistent things that have told me I'm not crazy, I'm not doing bad things. The audiences themselves thank me and they come out looking somehow relieved. They don't come out looking traumatized. They don't come out looking shifty like, who can I go kill? I'm always amazed that people are so upset about what's happening in shadows on a wall, you know? Look at the real world. Those are people really dying, really terrified, really having horrible things done to themselves. Kids know that's there. They experience it half the time at their own homes, you know? So it's like, the reason they go into these theaters is to have some sort of sense made of it all, I think. Okay, you might be saying, of course a horror filmmaker like Wes Craven is gonna say that, but what does a psychological expert think? So I went back and asked Dr. King her thoughts on Craven's comments about young adults making sense of real-world horrors and the safety of a movie theater. So teens, adolescents need to explore. They're trying to make sense of this world. And, and you know, part of my understanding of thriving is coming to grips with kind of your sense of morality and your values and your beliefs about the world. So horror becomes this venue 
in which you can really explore and come up to boundaries. Adolescents love to push boundaries, right? Cross boundaries, actually. And if you can do that, as you mentioned earlier, like in a safe environment, that's awesome. So it really gives kids this opportunity, probably at a less conscious level, to, to explore like what's right and wrong, good, evil, um, how we treat people, how we don't. Um, that's that's really important. Oh, that's fascinating. So from your perspective, it's a, a way to process what you believe about a world that's filled with some pretty terrifying stuff. But on top of that, at least for teenagers and adults, it also functions as a way of, of, of pushing boundaries, which isn't just about fear, but is part of what's involved as humans develop from children to adults. And that makes to me a, a lot of sense intellectually, but you're not just a developmental psychologist, you're also a mom of teenagers and young adults. So how has your experience as a parent shaped your views of what's going on psychologically when young people watch horror movies? So I told my daughter, who's 15, that I was gonna do a podcast on horror, and she literally laughed out loud. She's like, mom, you hate horror. Why are you talking about horror films? I love horror films and you hate horror films. And I said, I know, isn't that the funniest thing? And I hate horror. I see the merits in it, which I'll say more about. I just get so stinking scared. I like something is wrong with me. I, you know, I was the kid who like got scared watching Scooby-Doo growing up and the Wizard of Oz, you know, the monkey scene was terrifying. Um, I am very much of a wimp when it comes to horror film. But she said, mom, I love horror because it's a bonding experience with my friends. She said, you know, we get terrified and we all have this emotional experience together and it's bonding. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's really a fantastic thought. I thought more of the cathartic experience of horror of like, oh, I can be terrified. I can be disgusted. I can be horrified. I can experience fear um, in a safe environment and know when I, the lights will go on and it's all gonna be okay. But her highlighting this, this opportunity to bond with kids is really, really helpful. I'm always telling parents, like, you know, there's good, bad, and ugly risk. <laughs> and and things like horror films, uh, maybe TPing, you know, are on the good side, you know, and it goes to the dangerous, like drugs, and et cetera. Those are the ugly risks. So horror provides those bonding experiences and that exhilaration kids need. If what happens in a horror movie is that it offers us a shared experience, if it provides us with opportunities to bond with each other, then we should actually be thankful for horror films, especially during a time like right now, when we're still reeling from the effects of the elongated period of isolation and disruption that so many people experienced during COVID. Remember, it wasn't until May 5th of 2023 that the World Health Organization officially announced COVID-19 was no longer a public health emergency. But even as they made this announcement, they also reported that since the start of the global pandemic, there's been a 25% increase in anxiety and depression worldwide. And even more, aging adults, women, and children have been disproportionately affected. If all that info hits you as a little depressing, well, that's because it is. We really do have a mental health crisis on our hands. But don't worry, it appears as if horror films are here to save the day. I wonder though, is that even possible? 
Don't forget what Wes Craven said. They help us exercise our fears about the traumas and terrors out in the real world. And as our resident psychological expert, Dr. King pointed out, it can actually be healthy for a group of people to get together and have a shared experience while watching a movie like It. I'll take him. I'll take all of you. And I'll feast on your flesh as I feed on your fear. Okay, uh, I take that back. Demons, monsters, murderers, all that's totally fine with me. But I draw the line at clowns. And dolls. There's no way that anything good can come from either one, and no famous horror film director will convince me otherwise. Unfortunately, we will return to clowns and creepy dolls in a later episode. Whether or not I'm your host, then? Well, that remains to be seen. But even if I am able to muster the courage for the Clowns and Dolls episode, let's face it, with all the terrible things out there in the world today, why pile on even more horror? Isn't there enough evil out there already? Well, that's another fair question, and truth be told, it's not the only concern that plenty of fair-minded people have about horror. But when we throw Christianity into the mix with horror, the number of critiques only seem to grow. Too many horror movies are unnecessarily violent. A kind of Torture porn. Horror films are not just filled with anti-Christian content, but they seem to celebrate it. I lose sleep too often after watching horror movies. They just mess me up personally. They can be damaging to our mental health. Isn't it better to avoid all this talk about darkness and instead focus on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable? Philippians 4 verse 8. This podcast will address each of these concerns, but I want to focus on the last one, not only because it's the one I hear most often when I'm teaching or speaking on film, but also because it encapsulates all the others. When people reference the Philippians 4 8 passage, they almost always emphasize whatever is pure and lovely and noble, but they conveniently overlook the part that says whatever is true. And sometimes the truth is is horrible. Just think for a moment about this passage from 2 Kings 6, 24 through 29, which I had my unsuspecting wife read without giving her any kind of content warning in advance. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord the king. The king replied, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, What's the matter? She answered, This woman said to me, Give up your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So he cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, Give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. Where is this in the Bible? That's in 2 Kings. Ever read that one before? No. If women cooking and eating their children isn't horrific, I don't know what is. But the horrific nature of the story doesn't make it any less true or any less worthy of our consideration. 
In fact, the deepest truth around which the entire Christian faith turns is possibly one of the most horrifying moments in all of history. The crucifixion is the epitome of the horror genre. Equal parts graphic violence, bodily trauma, and demonic forces all mixed together with political monsters, religious evils, and even a dash of calloused humor. But this horror story is nevertheless true on a fundamental level. And Christians are invited not just to acknowledge it as true, but to meditate on it, to focus their attention on it, and to orient their lives around it. It's what every good Friday service is designed to do, bring us face to face with the horrible truth of God's death on a mass torture device. Still, it's easy to forget just how terrifying the stories in the biblical text actually are. In addition to women eating their babies, the Old Testament has plenty more where that came from. We already know about Ehud stabbing a custom-designed dagger so far into the stomach of an overweight king while he's on the toilet that his fat covers over the hilt. But only a few pages later, Jael drives a tent peg through a person's skull, pinning him to the ground. And in a rarely covered episode from 1 Samuel, David kills 200 Philistines and then presents all 200 of their foreskins to Saul for no other reason than to prove to the king that he was worthy of marrying his daughter. The New Testament takes horror a step further. In the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples are constantly confronted with demonic forces, whether in the form of tortured persons who are possessed by demons or Satan himself. The book of Revelation features scene after horrific scene of terrifying visions, monstrous creatures, and literal bloodbaths. And let's not forget about the story of John the Baptist, whose severed head was put on a platter and presented to the king's daughter and her mother. The story of John the Baptist's beheading is profoundly unsettling, grotesque even. But if it isn't, if it doesn't haunt our dreams after we read it, we need to ask ourselves why. In fact, do a quick internet search for Caravaggio's painting titled Salome with the Head of John the Baptist, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The point is, these horror stories are in the Bible. We usually don't read them to children, but even when we do, we tend to gloss over them or sanitize them but they're there, God's horror-drenched R-rated revelation to us. What's the value of these stories? And why do we have such a hard time reading them? Why would the Bible itself invite us to not simply know about, but to meditate on graphic stories of torture, violence, and evil? To quote the great horror writer Flannery O'Connor, sometimes you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, she says, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. Whether it's a Flannery O'Connor novel, the biblical text, or a horror movie, it may be that the primary value of these stories is to shock us out of complacency, to wake us up to realities about the world that we might otherwise not want to acknowledge, much less engage. It could also be that horror stories, in the way they evoke a visceral response in us, are designed to force our hand to leave us with no other option than to admit our feelings of dread and anxiety and despair so that we can do something with them rather than be controlled by them. Or perhaps it's something even deeper. Could it be that as we digest rather than dismiss or avoid these stories of violence, darkness, and evil, they serve as food for new life? Rather than leaving us perpetually terrorized or traumatized, could it be that horror stories are actually rupturing reality from within, transforming the brokenness of our lives into something we couldn't possibly imagine? 
In each and every episode this season, we're gonna be walking through a kind of haunted house. I'll be your faithful guide and fellow traveler as we move from one frightening room to the next, each of which will be filled with large and startling figures. As we do, we'll be talking to filmmakers, fans, critics, haters, psychological experts, and even an exorcist or two. At times, it will be shocking, but we aren't interested in shock for its own sake. The journey I'm inviting you to take will require each of us to stare into the dark heart of reality and not look away. But our goal isn't to wallow in this darkness any more than it is to eliminate it from our lives. We're after something potentially far more unsettling. This podcast isn't about how to avoid fear, how to leverage it, or even whether or not it's okay to be afraid. This podcast is an exercise in learning how to fear rightly. Of course, anytime I say something that comes off sounding so grave or serious, I try to remind myself of the wisdom I learned from my 10-year-old daughter. Sometimes there's good thrills of being scared and sometimes there's not. Um, like, for example, playing hide-and-seek, sometimes you get, like, excited, like, oh, are they going to find me? And then, like, maybe someone's going to come up and be like, boo, I found you! And they're like, ah, but it's like a good kind of scare. I couldn't say it much better. In certain respects, we're like little kids playing hide-and-seek in the dark. We're talking about movies here, which means we'd be doing it wrong if we weren't having fun with it all. To that end, we've assembled a great lineup of guests who've had a hand in creating some of the more startling and terrifying visions in recent memory. Stories that not only provide us with those good kind of thrills, but also stay with us long after the credits have rolled. We start where all good stories start, in the beginning. In episode one, we talk to critics like Josh Larson and filmmakers as different as Scott Derrickson and Pete Docter about their early memories of fear. Episode two features an extended interview with Scott Derrickson, writer and director of films like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister, and The Black Phone. Scott schools us in the subgenres of horror and the various fears these films elicit. In episodes three and four, we add a second Scott to the mix, Scott Teams, who's written films like Halloween Kills, Firestarter, Insidious, and even the upcoming Exorcist sequel. Together, the two Scots guide us through the world of supernatural horror and what it means to believe in certain powers and principalities. In episode five, we sit down with Mac Brandt, one of the on-screen monsters from HBO's Lovecraft Country. We not only discuss why we're afraid of monsters, but who the real monsters are. The second half of our season starts with a bit of lighthearted relief. We bring back Pete Docter, head of Disney Pixar, to talk about the ways children's films riff on horror tropes. Unfortunately, at least for me, this is also the episode where we try to pin down why dolls and clowns are so god-awfully creepy. Hopefully, I make it. Thankfully, we move from clowns and dolls to serial killers pretty quickly. <laughs> episode 7 is all about slasher films and the role that violence plays in our communal experience of fear. In episode eight, we hear from a number of female filmmakers like Anna Zlokovich and Rosemary Rodriguez and Sari Martin Concepcion, artists who are not merely subverting the expectations of the genre, but are actually allowing horror to become what it was always meant to be. Last but not least, we bring our thrill-seeking adventure to a close with an episode on horror films that create space for grappling with trauma. We talk to some up-and-coming filmmakers who are intentionally turning to the horror genre as a means for generating conversations about intergenerational trauma that might lead to post-traumatic growth. 
Like I said, it's kind of like going through a haunted house. I can't tell you everything we have in store for you because that would spoil the thrill of it all. But I can tell you that each episode is filled with unexpected twists, hidden passages, and of course, the occasional jump scare. So don't miss out on our first full episode featuring Scott, Pete, and Josh. Fear, an origin story. Next time on Be Afraid. Be Afraid is a production of Christianity Today, Uncommon Voices Collective, and Brim Film at Fuller Theological Seminary. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producer and graphic designer is Stephen Scheidler. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Jeremy Hunt and Koheleth. Written and hosted by me, Cutter Calloway. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.